Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, April 12th. Today, we're talking to Julia Alexander, Senior Strategy Analyst at Parrot Analytics and a contributor to Puck. Julia is going to explain to us the future of streaming at the newly formed media giant Warner Brothers Discovery. Can HBO Max and Discovery Plus rival the success of Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon? And later on in the show, Teddy Schleifer will join us with some new insight on billionaire philanthropist Mackenzie Scott. We hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I am joined today by Julia Alexander, a senior strategy analyst at Parrot Analytics and a contributor to Puck. Julia, welcome to the pod. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me on. Where are you joining us from? Brooklyn. 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 Yeah. What's up? <laughs> um, I saw a uh, Snapchat this weekend. I work at Snapchat, so I get Snapchats despite being 40 years old. Um from a friend on the East Coast and like they were in DC outside of the Washington Nationals game. And it was like, she was like rooting for it to be spring so hard. You could tell the East Coasters were just like ready for warm weather and for day drinking outside of a baseball game, but they were all like huddled together in their jackets. Is that what the weather is like in New York right now? That like oppressive middle between winter and spring or is it nice yet? Yeah, it was one of those Saturdays this past weekend where it was kind of rainy, but it hit 55 and you just said, we're going to go for it. And I texted a buddy in L.A. and I said, we're out. It's a good time. Like the brewskis are flowing. And he said, oh, honey. (laughs) (laughs) I know that feeling so hard. Oh, yeah. So you're joining us today because you are a media analyst. You're an expert in these days, all things streaming. And you have a piece up on Puck this week about where Warner Brothers Discovery which David Zaslog formally took the helm of this week, where that gigantic company now fits in the streaming market hierarchy. What is your sort of take on Warner Brothers Discovery as we head into this new era? Where does it fit in the spectrum of Hulu, Netflix, uh, Amazon, Disney Plus? Like, are HBO Max and Discovery Plus going to become the same thing? And if that's the case, is it going to be a juggernaut that very quickly rivals these other platforms that we've become so used to? Overnight, it's becoming a juggernaut. To put this into perspective, as a result of the merger, there are about five media companies that now control 70% of the U.S. audience demand for wow. like all of television. And to put that into greater context, HBO Max, Discovery+, Plus, CNN+, Plus, whatever that becomes, these are the suite of streaming services that belong to Warner Brothers Discovery, are going to account for a very large stake of that 70%. And so when we think about what Warner Brothers Discovery is, when we think about what its place is going to be in this moment of media, there's two questions that it answers. Who is watching and who controls what is watch- what people are watching, I should say. Who is watching people who are younger going towards streaming, people who are older are getting rid of their cable as they go towards streaming or in a really macabre kind of way, dying off. And that kind of leaves a lot of pay TV homes in this state of disarray. Still a really valuable business. There's like 75 to 80 million pay TV households still. It's not like it's going to disappear overnight. But as they think about going towards streaming, what you really have within Discovery Warner Media 
is this idealist situation where you have one giant who's great at making prestige programming, who's great at making the type of TV and films that people want to sign up for. And on the other hand, a cable giant who's willing to see those pay TV households through, but is also willing to say, we make really good reality TV. We have for so long. If we combine our assets, we create an undeniable product that rivals Netflix and Hulu to become one of the biggest general entertainment streaming services in the world. So is HBO Max going to fold CNN Plus and Discovery Plus into it and create just a single behemoth streaming platform? Or are they going to be these three different things that sort of like link to each other in the UX and you can like sort of click between them? Inevitably, we will get to your first point. And we know this because David Zaslav, the new CEO of this combined company, has said, I think there is a limitation to how many streaming services that people want to pay for. He's right. There is a limitation, especially when they are under one company where it's just as easy to say, what if we put them all on one platform? Now, the issue there is pricing. If you're going to combine HBO, HBO Max, Discovery Plus, CNN Plus, that's like a $22 package. That's a hefty price. If we think about Netflix, that's currently $15.50 in the U.S. for their most popular plan. HBO Max is $15. Disney Plus is under $10. So that would be a huge jump. Which is why I suspect over the next year, 18 months, but definitely over the next year, they will introduce some kind of a bundle that replicates what the Disney streaming services bundle look like, where you pay for Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus, you effectively get ESPN Plus free. Like that's kind of what they do with their weakest arm. They go, we're going to give it to you for free. We hope that this increases engagement and the street likes it because it makes the streaming numbers go up across each of those platforms. And more importantly, we also know that the bundle reduces churn, which is going to be a huge issue for these companies in the next few years. As they start making their big subscriber acquisitions and as they get to the point of the cliff where they have eventually have to go down, that's when you're fighting to retain those customers you really want to keep that everyone else is fighting to keep. So that is when HBO Max, Discovery Plus, and CNN Plus make a great point to be one platform. I feel like another knock on HBO Max is sort of what you're talking about on the content side is there's so much disparate stuff on it. You know, you have your premium like HBO premiere series, like the Game of Thrones spinoff over here. And then you've got like HGTV, like House Hunter reruns over here. And like maybe like TNT's TBS is like streaming rights for the NBA over here. Like, but I feel like that's kind of an unfair criticism because like all of these streaming platforms have just like a range of just like stuff and some of it's good and some of it's crap, but like people are just going to go to what they want. I think what the advantage that a lot of these companies have with streaming is that if we think about what we just described, I mean, that was cable. You had 500 right. channels. It was bloated. You didn't know what you wanted to watch. And you sat there with your TV remote going through until you eventually turned on. I mean, for me, you just put on a Mets game and you get really sad. But you, you know, that's what, that's what you're going to do. Um, and you kind of do that over and over again. With streaming, they have this ability to do what we refer to or what I refer to as contextual recommendations, as opposed to just relying on algorithmic recommendations. Algorithmic recommendations say, if you watch The Handmaid's Tale, you will probably like another depressing drama that you should watch. That's not how humans work. Humans watch Handmaid's Tale. The next thing they want to watch is like South Park or Rick and Morty. Like they want to watch something where they're laughing and they're not thinking about it. Or... If your discovery, really, really good, trashy. I use that as a love because I, I love Discovery Plus, but it's good, trashy reality programming. It is like, sell this house. It is whatever it might be. It's, it's a, a murder investigation. It is whatever you want to turn on, you're going to find it. This is where their design, their UI design, their UX design, but also 
their contextual recommendations and if they use, which is what I suspect, tiles within the app. So if you yes. open it up, you might be able to click on CNN, you're going to click on Discovery, whatever you want to get to, what you're going to get to. Think of how Disney Plus operates with like Star Wars and Marvel. It's going to be a really great way to say like, hey, we know that you're coming here to watch Winning Time and you want to watch this Lakers show and that's great. And we know when you're done, you also seem to like Food Network shows, you like TLC shows, and we can just bring that up and supplement it and recommend it to you or curate your homepage in a really, in an authentic way but not have it so that it feels bloated like cable did, where you're searching through everything. Mm -hmm. What you said about Netflix is a really good point. And what we often forget when we talk about Netflix is it has two headquarters. It's headquartered in Silicon Valley and it's headquartered in LA. And Mm -hmm. both places are just as important. That company runs 400 A-B tests a year to try Mm -hmm. and figure out how to engage and retain customers just as much as they think about the content that they're putting on the platform. And what we're entering into a world, and this is what Zaslav has to do, and this is a really big deal for a lot of veterans of Hollywood, is you are taking this idea of distribution and supply, and you're putting it all under one company, one umbrella, and you're in control of everything. It's no longer like you're just supplying the content to the carriers. And the carriers are worrying about, is there a blackout? What do we do if there is a huge lightning storm? Like, what happens if this goes down? All of a sudden, this is you. You have to figure out how you make the technology work for a really great experience to get people to open the app. I always say the hardest part of streaming is getting someone to subscribe. That's where your content comes in. The second hardest part is getting them to open the app when they have a bunch of other streaming services. That's where the Mm -hmm. experience comes in from the tech side. And Zaslav is going to have to come in and really understand how that works when he's merging this cable giant company and also this company who has a strong foot within the streaming uh, wars already. One of my biggest takeaways from leaving CNN, which was, you know, part of the Warner Media umbrella, and then moving to Snapchat, which is, you know, a large tech company and sort of like Netflix has this big content team inside of it that's both creating, producing, doing deals, like creating all the all the content but also like constantly testing things. Like I would work alongside designers and engineers and also had insight into like what the sales team was doing. And it just like, it forced you to understand the top down of the business in every way, even if you were an editorial creative position. And at CNN, you know, which is a great news organization, but there was really like a silo between them and the business side them and the sort of engineering and tech side. They just like, no one talked to each other. The employee base was just sort of older and more legacy and didn't, at the time at least, really understand necessarily the future of technology and platforms and streaming. And so those are just two very culturally different places. But Julia, you did a tweet on uh, twitter.com, which is a social uh, website that we all post (laughs) on when we're bored a few days ago. And you said... I admire what the Warner Media team has accomplished and what they tried to do over the last few years, despite some big management issues from the AT&T side. HBO Max is a success. Programming is still top-notch. Risks were taken and many worked. And still, there's a black cloud. Can you just talk about real quick as we move from Warner Media into Warner Brothers Discovery World, why HBO Max is a success, but also why you say there's still a black cloud? This is the third company that HBO will belong to in a very short time span, considering how long you know Hollywood's been around and what HBO really has accomplished. 
HBO has always come out on top. HBO has been left alone to focus on programming and to build itself into the network that it is. And HBO Max, credit to the AT&T management for this one move, and Lucas Shaw wrote about this, who's at Bloomberg in a really great newsletter. They got out of the way of Casey Bloys and programming. And they said, you program, you do what you're going to do for HBO, do it for HBO Max on a grander scale. And it has worked. The streaming service has seen huge subscriber growth. Its retention levels are pretty high, which means its customers aren't leaving. It's become the streaming service that even anecdotally you talk to people and it's like one of the three that they're not willing to give up because there's always something. And they've really managed to integrate this new programming that does not feel like HBO alongside, you know, Turner programming that's, you know, Adult Swim and that's Cartoon Network. And they've managed to integrate that with HBO and it feels really good. The other thing I will say is I'm a big fan of Jason Kylar. I think he came in and I will use a term that Silicon Valley now hates and Hollywood has always hated. And he disrupted a very traditional model. But at a time when he said, we are either going to lose money on these in theaters because no one is going, or we're going to use them to bring people to HBO Max at a time when they might not have. Remember, HBO Max didn't have that much great programming outside of the HBO series. There wasn't a lot going on for people to sign up, but those movies helped them go to about 75 million subscribers by the end of 2021, putting them in a really great position. So when they go forward, I worry about the lack of risk that may be taken that led to where HBO Max ended up, which was a really great position. And it was not in a great move, if you ask a lot of the studio heads, I imagine, who were probably upset and had to deal with a lot of creative talent. But at that moment in time, when he said, I was hired to come in and build a streaming service, he looked at movies and said, what if we use them on streaming? What if their inherent value and their perceived value was they're just as big on a streaming platform as they are in theaters, which by the way is what Netflix has been trying to do for years. And so I think they took a lot of risks and a lot of them really paid off. And this cloud that is still hanging over them is this constant uncertainty that HBO has. This constant like, who is our parent? Who And who's running that company? Who? What part of us do they value? Are they gonna be involved in every greenlighting decision? Are they gonna let us do our thing? And HBO works best, like a really independent, gifted kid, kind of left alone to do their thing and just provide results. And so I have little to no concern that HBO Max and Discovery Plus will continue to be fine. But that uncertainty over what happens to the teams that built HBO Max, that took the risks, that said, we're going to try this. And if it works, great. And if not, we go back to the drawing board. A lot of them are no longer there. And I do worry about that. Julia, thank you so much. Everyone listening, uh, Julia's got a great piece up on Puck this week about all of this. We are at a huge moment in media where things are changing rapidly and it's it's useful sometimes to poke your head up above the sand, look around and take stock of what's working and what's not. So thanks, Julia. Let's have you on soon. Thank you for having me. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Teddy Schleifer on his beat right now. Hey, thanks, Peter. Uh, Greetings from Miami, where I am running into more people on the street than I do in downtown San Francisco. But a few things on my mind. Um, Over the weekend, there was a great piece in The Times about Mackenzie Scott, who is, of course, the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, and I think is uh, a character that we at Puck have been very interested in. I've been very interested in her for a long time for what she says about the future of philanthropy. Mackenzie Scott is someone who was not a household name three years ago. 
uh, even though in a lot of ways she kind of is a co-founder of Amazon. She kind of gets written out of the story and it's a short shrift there. But Mackenzie Scott is someone who is remaking the world of charitable giving largely by doing massive unrestricted grants, like sometimes as much as hundreds of millions of dollars through consultants, through her family office, and without, say, the 1,500 people who work at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And part of what makes her interesting is just how private she is. One of the big themes that I've been writing about for the last several years is that to be a mega philanthropist is to have an extraordinary amount of power. And that power can run into conflict with donors' desire for privacy. And Mackenzie has been a very private person for a long time. But this Times piece by my friend Nick Kulish and Rebecca Ruiz, it's probably the most thorough story to date about Mackenzie as a person. It unearths anecdotes about, you know, Mackenzie testifying at town meetings when she's a teenager. It talks about her parents who are kind of Republicans to date, still are, even though Mackenzie is very much a hero of the social justice movement. It talks about Mackenzie's founding or involvement early in Amazon. I thought the most revealing piece of the story related to Mackenzie's writings with Toni Morrison, who is her longtime mentor. The Times obtained letters between Toni Morrison, who died two or three years ago, and Mackenzie, who was a novelist and looked up to Toni Morrison. And in a lot of ways, the writings, as personal letters often do, paint a very vivid portrait of what Mackenzie was thinking almost as a pseudo diary. The reason that's interesting to me is because, as I said at the beginning, Mackenzie has a tremendous amount of power in our life, whether or not we know it or not. There are nonprofits that are going to be major players in regular people's lives because of the charitable decisions that she's made. And that means it's really important to understand who this person is. Like there was some commentary um, from Jeff Jarvis, who's a sort of a uh, a media scold. Um, he tweeted about the piece. He said, like, I don't really understand why anyone's writing about this. Like, this seems like it's prying. Mackenzie just wants privacy. Why are these reporters writing 4,000 words about Mackenzie? And I, uh, as I drove through Miami National Parks over the weekend, uh, sent a very risky tweet while driving, which I don't recommend anyone do. But I basically said, look, Jeff, uh, I didn't say it quite that aggressively, but I said, look, she is someone who has uh, a lot of influence in society. And I don't really believe that she has a fair expectation to privacy. You know, she is someone who has enormous sway over kind of the the life we live. And uh, when you're worth that much money, I don't really believe you have the same right to privacy as say, if she was worth a fraction of that and was just some, you know, podunk philanthropist. The Gates Foundation doesn't have a expectation of privacy and understanding who Mackenzie is understanding what she tells Toni Morrison when she's 25, what she testifies about at town meetings when she's 15. This stuff is all is all important. So that's all I've got from here. And I will hopefully be back on the podcast soon. And I'll keep you updated on, on Mackenzie Scott. She's not going away, obviously, anytime in the near future. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.